This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. I am Roxanne Cody, and this is Just the Right Book Shorts version. As always, I'm joined by Billy Goldstein, the book critic for NBC, an author, and just a genius about books. We'll just have to say that. So I want to start today's conversation, Billy, with the thing I love about like serendipity in books. So this week, A.S. Byatt passed away, and I, you know, was thinking about her, which made me go to my bookcase to try to find Louise Gluck's Seven Ages, mm-hmm. which I didn't have because I'm in Maine and that book's in Connecticut. <laughs> but then I came across an E.B. White book about his essays on democracy, which we'll talk about at the end of this podcast, but I thought I was like sitting in front of one of my little, you know, just a little part of a bookcase. And I thought, I want to, I want to reread that. I want to look at this. And I I just love the sensibility of that. You know, it just feels like there's always, it always makes me optimistic about everything because there's something I want to reread, read for the first time talk to you about, or it just puts me in a good mood. I'm just, I'm just going to say that. But in talking about A.S. Byatt, so she passed away. And for those of you who are old Margaret Drabble fans, it was Margaret Drabble's sister, right? a very different kind of writer. And so the story, there's two points I want to make about it. When I read Possession, I was possessed. And thought it was extraordinary. But what's funny is I'm only left with a visceral reaction. Like I don't exactly, I sort of remember it was about romance and a detective, but I don't actually remember it. But the other thing it made me think about, Billy, was that there are books that were huge bestsellers. This book came out in 1990. It was actually the year R.J. Julia opened. And now... People aren't reading it. People aren't talking about it. It it has staying power in some quiet way, but not staying power in the way some other fiction might have. And it reminded me of a second book. Hmm. So it turns out that today is the 50th anniversary of Ruby Fruit Jungle's publication, which I read when it came out. It's by Rita Mae Brown. And I loved it. Now, it's about a queer couple, and I'm straight, but it was so groundbreaking to read a contemporary novel then, you know, it was 50 years ago. And it's another book that I think has disappeared. I mean, I hope there's a piece in the New York Times where a bunch of other writers comment on what Ruby Fruit Jungle meant to them. 
And it just made me realize that there's two books that I adored, one 35 years ago, the other 50 years ago, that are not quite in common currency now. It's so interesting. While you were talking, I was nodding. And of course, that doesn't work on a podcast. (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Smiling and nodding in recognition doesn't work on a podcast. I don't usually need to be reminded to pipe up. But I do agree with you on on so many. I mean, you've just said so many things I wanted to, to second. First of all, possession. When I read it, I also was possessed. And one of the things I remember you you refer to your visceral response is I remembered you know, some of the plot and obviously that it takes place in the present. And then we go back into the past with the lost and now found letters of two Victorian poets to one another. And what I remembered about that book, which I reread about five or so years ago and and mm. loved a second time. But what I had remembered was the actual physical experience of reading it. And I remember mm. that I uh, was lying in bed, finishing it one night, coming very close to the end. And I realized I had about 10 or 15 pages left in the book. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to read them tonight. I'm going to mm. go to sleep and I will wake up fresh in the morning and be able to really savor and enjoy the last pages of this reading experience. And I don't remember ever having had that feeling before, like not wanting to race through it and finish it, but I just felt I'm not in the mm-hmm. mental state to really absorb it if I do it just before I'm falling asleep or when I'm tired. And so I got up the next morning and I read it or finished it before going to work. And it just left me on air so much mm-hmm. that I have, I remember that experience decades later and can picture myself thinking about that and putting the book down and looking forward to waking up in the morning. It really did hold up. And I am always surprised, as you are, when when you were describing how a book that was such a big bestseller and also, I think, spawned so many, I don't want to say imitators, but opened up the realm mm-hmm. of what a historical novel can do. And there, it, it's such a common thing now for a novel to take place in the present, and then we go back into the past through some some plot device, and so the the stories are taking place in two time frames, and there's even an effort to uh, mimic, imitate the the rhetoric of that time. You know, so it's not only just mm-hmm. going back in time, but there is a, a studied effort by the writer, which was so effortlessly done by A.S. Byatt, although obviously it must have required a great effort, to recreate the sound and the feel of Victorian poets um, and their private letters and then also their own poetry. So I think it was a very influential book that Mm. people don't really remember in the way that they should. I think one problem, uh, this is just my opinion, is it was made into a very bad movie. Yeah. So that didn't extend. That doesn't help it. That doesn't help it. You know, like The Hours was made into such a good movie that I think that that propels the book in a a new way. And Rita Mae Brown, I think, is not given the the credit she deserves. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who would say, well, a, a woman writer is not going to be seen as influential in general or wasn't at that time. There's that argument. Then that a lesbian writer would be more marginalized. And I think also without uh, casting any uh, you know, lesser regard on her later books, 
she then moved into a very successful and popular series of, you know, sneaky pie brown mysteries that are not of, I mean, I don't think she would claim them to be of the same kind of groundbreaking importance as Ruby Fruit Jungle came to have. And so she's she didn't necessarily build on those strengths, although she created for herself a probably much wider audience through, you know, these mystery novels she wrote. Yeah. She also wrote Six of One, didn't she? Yes. Yes. Because I love that. And that's not one of the detective ones, right? Right. But, yeah. but those are also long ago. I love how these books remain present for us on our shelves, but may not be top of mind for yeah. books. We might we might, Billy, one day do a show that we'll do with video and we'll each be at our bookcases, like just sharing with everybody. Oh, my God. Do you remember this book or do you remember that book? That's but fantastic. Before we move on to your latest obsession, okay. um, I just want to close this with a quote that we had A.S. buy it for an event, not for possessions, but one of her later books. And we had, I don't know, three or four hundred people. And one of the questions I asked her, which, you know, sort of a dopey question, but about how does she begin her writing routine? And she had one of the all-time great lines. She said the first thing she does when she wakes up is reads. And she does that to tickle the feathers of her brain so that she starts the day creatively. Oh, do you how much do you love that? Oh my god. I don't I don't know whether <laughs> I love that more or I'm more envious that you got to interview AS Bayan. <laughs> and green with envy and and suffused with love. <laughs> Okay, so now I'm going to turn it over to you and I'm going to keep a time clock, Billy. Yes, I think it might be Because I know you're obsessed, so have at it. Okay, well, the book that I uh, am obsessed with and I'm so glad to have read and and want to urge upon everyone and hope that they will read is My Name is Barbara by Barbara Streisand. And I am a a Brooklyn-born Barbara Streisand fan, but... I just have to say that even I was surprised as much as I love Barbara Streisand by how fantastic this book is. It it really is. She captures her own voice on the page. So it's an incredibly well written. And I, I have not listened to the audio, although people who are listening to the audio say how magnificent it is to hear these stories in her All own. All 48 hours? All 48 hours. I, just, I thought uh, maybe I should just... Uh, fly to Australia and <laughs> fly right back. You know, that that a round trip trip to Australia without even staying there would be about 48 hours. But she captures her voice on the page and she's incredibly honest. And it's a very intimate book. I mean, where she is both recounting her successes, but you get a sense of her as a very self-aware uh, and and sometimes uncomfortably so self-aware and self-conscious person. And she doesn't seem to hide any of her idiosyncrasies or her difficulties. I just want to read one short passage where she's talking about a man that she was dating. And she said, 
And I probably wasn't easy for him. Or let's say I'm not easy for most men. I have strong opinions. I can be stubborn. I get angry. And I've been in the public eye for a long time, which means people come up and ask for autographs. That's why I stay home most of the time. <laughs> so, That's cute. So she she tells wonderful stories and really uh, the, her early life, her, her difficult relationship with her mother. And then what's so amazing about the book, I think, is the detail she goes into about how her concerts, her albums, her movies all came to be. And you get such a respect, I think, for her as an artist because she thinks through every detail. And I just, I relished all of the detail of how the way we were was made, how Yentl was made. I can't say enough about this book, and it's and it really minimizes it to call it a celebrity autobiography. A friend who also is reading it said it should be called "Portrait of the Artist as a Young Woman." That would be the first mm. part that he was reading, and and I think it goes beyond, far beyond what I could have hoped for or expected, or what you think of when you hear the words "celebrity autobiography." So I love the book, and I hope everyone reads it. Uh, I was reading aloud things to my husband and he said, well, I think for right now I've heard enough, but so maybe that's a good signal that I should cut off now. Maybe people have heard enough from me about Barbara. Well, so Billy, here's here's a, a question. I have not read it and I'm a fan of Barbara Streisand, but I wouldn't say I'm a fanatical fan. And I, I you know, maybe this is unfair, but I don't even have a curiosity about reading the book, except maybe dipping into it. But the criticism of it has been that no one dared edit her. Mm. And it is overfilled with self-congratulatory quotes from other people. So how do you respond to that criticism? I think that that didn't bother me because it comes across when you read the whole book as more of a function of her her insecurity than it does any kind of grandiosity. And hmm. could could some of those have been trimmed? Yes. I mean, I, I, I'm i not going to say that every page is perfect, but none of that bothered me because of the countervailing honesty and intimacy of the voice on the page. And so to me, it just seemed part and parcel, I coin a phrase, of all of the detail that she was giving us about mm-hmm the things that usually get such short shrift. I mean, most people would say, oh, and then I made Yentl. Oh, I mean, she directed it. But, you know, and then I made The Way We Were. But when she talks about how the movie was edited by the director and what was cut out and why there are holes in the story. Yeah, that part's interesting. That is so interesting. And I think when you read about her relationship with her mother, it puts so much into context. Mm. and. In a very moving way, I just there. There's one thing. You know, she, her mother, she always said, had a very nice voice and you know, a light soprano voice. And when Barbara Streisand was in her early teens, they went to a recording studio in New York where you could each of you make a record. And whatever the song was, I don't remember that her mother also recorded part of this session. Years later, on one of Barbara Streisand's TV specials, she sings 
this song. And she thought of it as a tribute to her mother. It's not a major song. I I don't remember the title of it, as I said. And her mother, in reacting to this, didn't think of it was a tribute. You sort of yelled at her, you copied my song, you stole my song. I think when you, you know, hear a story like that, it's almost like, I am perfectly content to let Barbara Streisand go on for 900 pages. One, because I love the detail, but because I've begun to understand who she is as mm-hmm. a person, as well as an artist. Yeah, I I know. I mean, I'm not proud of myself, but in reading all these reviews, I did Google Mike Wallace's interview of her that made her cry. And that does go to the issue of her mother. But so for all of our listeners, you get the idea that Billy loves the, the Barbara Streisand biography, which is titled My Name is Barbara. And, you know, you can write to us and let us know if you think Billy's obsession is deserved or you fall into my camp that I would have liked somebody to give me like a, um, what they call those things in school that summarize the classics? Cliff notes? The cliff notes for the biography. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now we're going to take a sharp right turn. Okay. Uh, Well, actually, I should say we're going to take a sharp left turn. Okay. I had interviewed Heather Cox Richardson and that episode aired last week or about uh, 10 days ago. And she's phenomenal. She's got like over a million subscribers on Substack. And, you know, having having a, me too, a historian who's got that kind of following to me is extremely heartening. But her book was also reviewed in the New York Times with Rachel Maddow's book called Prequel. Prequel. And these are such important books, I think, for us to read because they, Rachel takes one approach, Heather takes the long view. She goes back to explain what rights the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights and the Constitution protect, which are somewhat different. Mm -hmm. And what it is that are the elements of our democracy, what are the elements of creeping authoritarianism and how to look for it and how to guard against it and what we can do. But to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, Billy, when I went to the bookcase to look for Louise Gluck's Seven Ages, I came across E.B. White's On Democracy, Mm -hmm. which was published in 2019. And his granddaughter, Martha White, put together all of E.B. White's essays on democracy, which are, I mean, I love, I mean, to say I love E.B. White, like you love Barbara Streisand, I love (laughs) E.B. White. All three of these books, Prequel by Rachel Maddow, Democracy Awakening by Heather Cox Richardson, E.B. White's On Democracy, are important reminders of our history and what it is we need to work hard to protect and why. So I just think these are, they're highly readable. All three, like you could whip through them, are just important for us to be paying attention to as we're coming up to another election year in a year, in a minute. In in a very short time. The First of all, before I say something about this subject, I have to confess my great envy again. So now I've learned in this podcast that you first interviewed A.S. Byatt, and now 
interviewed Heather Cox Richardson. I mean, I have to, I have to get on a different train. I mean, you are, you are in first class, and I am. In yeah, yeah, coach. yeah. Uh, but what you make me remember is in the fall and spring of 2019. So in, I, I interviewed some authors myself. I mean, I hadn't realized I was going to go exactly into this, but in, from that that lamenting who I haven't interviewed to now saying who I did. But so in 2018, Doris Kearns Goodwin published a book called Leadership, which was about four mm-hmm. presidents that she had already written books about, but talking about their leadership qualities, Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson. And then, oh, Theodore Roosevelt, and then Lyndon Johnson, excuse me. So I interviewed her in the fall of 2018. And then in the spring of 2019, I interviewed David McCullough. And mm. shortly after that, Okay, Dan so Battle. you're not exactly chopped liver, for God's <laughs> no, sake. No, thank you. <laughs> and what, what was astounding to me, you're making me think of what E.B. White wrote um, about 1939, about um, what Heather Cox Richardson and Rachel Maddow are writing about precursors to our moment. What was the, the Q&A of uh, with these authors and then the questions from the audience each of the audiences you know were eager after our conversation to ask questions of Doris Goodwin David McCullough and Dan Rather about what did they think was going you know the future of mm. our democracy this was 2018 and 2019 yeah and what was interesting to me was each of them took a long view mm. of American history and answered, not with any complacency by any means, but that reminding people of the the divisions before the Civil War, of the Civil War, of the 1930s, when, you know, Father Coughlin, you know, is is on one side and there's Franklin Roosevelt on the other, and then the, the divisions of the Vietnam War. And to not put too great a faith in the strength of American democracy, but to see in a certain way how they as historians had written about and understood previous periods that could be a guide at least Mm -hmm. to some strengths of American democracy. Again, not with any complacency about the stakes now. But what was interesting was that the audience did not seem comforted by that because what I noticed in this moment was these historians were taking a long view and the people who were asking the questions from the audience were wondering, how are we in our lifetimes going right. to get the next five years, 10 years? Not what is happening to the United States and will the United States survive, but what will my life be under the Trump administration under a for future that we can't foresee. So, you know, prequel tells us a historical antecedent. It it was not anything that readers felt gave them hope for their own lifetimes or their children's mm-hmm. lifetimes. And 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 yet we read either for information, not necessarily for hope per se, but without reading those, then we are lost entirely. So it was sort of you know caught in in the midst of of internal divisions and the external divisions hoping for some guidance and you know EB White Rachel Maddow Heather Cox Richardson are you know a marvelous triumvirate and they're they're our guardians of our of our internal uh, compasses I think as well as what to do politically and and you know Billy 
we're going to have to close out. We run out of time. But what I like that Heather Cox Richardson did, and everybody can listen to the whole podcast on it, is she does some guidance of what we can do. We are not helpless. And, you know, she encourages for us to start at the local level that it all it all begins to matter. And so I I think I think your point is so urgent in saying, yeah, but people can talk about the long view, but what about now? Right. Is the way people are thinking. What I like that Heather does is she talks about, okay, what can we do now? What do we need to pay attention to? So Unfortunately, Billy, we have run out of time, but we have managed to cover a lot, including your friend Barbara Streisand. (laughs) That's all we care about. (laughs) All right. Barbara Streisand and read and vote. That's what I think. Read read and vote. Those are our our two things. The the four-letter words of today, read and vote. Yeah. And and if that, that's right. Those are the two four-letter words. and, And with that, we won't go off a cliff. Uh, Billy, thank you so much for joining us on Just the Right Book uh, Shorts. Thanks to all of you that are listening. I I guess we keep calling this an experiment, but I think this is like the 20th (laughs) episode. But keep writing to us at podcast at rjjoya.com. Give us any feedback or thoughts or tell us about the Barbara Streisand book and uh, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Billy. Thank you. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio, produced by Roxanne Cody and Michael Selleck. Our editor is Gino Cordone at PleasantPodcast.com. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can email me any comments, suggestions, observations. We would love to hear from you. Email me at podcast at rjjoya.com. I do hope you will subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Just the Right Book Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.